This is David Oscar Marcus for The Defense. Welcome to the very first episode of the podcast, which is about criminal defense trial lawyers, their cases, and their clients. And in this episode, we'll be talking to Donna Rotuno, who represented Harvey Weinstein. Donna is a criminal defense lawyer from Chicago who has represented many people charged with sexual offenses, but nothing like the stage that she was going to be on with the Harvey Weinstein case. Of course, Weinstein was the most hated man in America by the time Donna came in to represent him. But before that, he was a well-known Hollywood producer, really the king and queen maker in Hollywood, having made movies like Pulp Fiction, Crying Game, and many others. But by the time Donna came into the case, there was a whole movement against Harvey Weinstein, the Me Too movement. There was a hostile judge, a hostile press, hostile celebrities, all working against Donna Rotuno and Harvey Weinstein. And we will speak about that with Donna, as well as all of the interesting issues surrounding the highest profile case of the year coming in at the last minute, trying to fight a movement and so on. This is for the defense. I want to just ask Donna, because you are a criminal defense lawyer who does this kind of work to get that first call from Harvey Weinstein must have been a thrill. Sure. It was funny because I received a call from someone um, that he works with, a friend of his who had done some more civil work for him. And, and he called to see if I would be interested in speaking to Harvey. And when I first got the call, of course, it was um, it, it is a thrilling, obviously, you know, professionally thrilling phone call to get. But I really because I had gotten press on these types of cases, I wasn't really shocked. And my reaction was more calm than I would have expected have expected it to be. And I even in my response, I was surprised by my own response when I said, well, I'm really not surprised to get this call. You know, I really kind of expected um, one of these cases in, in that arena uh, to find its way to me. So, because you've been you've been handling these cases for a long time. I have. Right. And and, you know, when you get that call, do you fly over to New York and meet with them? How does it work at that point? Yeah, so I got the call um, from a friend of his and asked if I'd be interested in speaking to Harvey. And it was like a Tuesday and I was on the way out of the office, actually, when I got the call and I was on my way to a dinner that I, I had to go to. And and I said, well, sure, you know, I'm willing to talk to anybody. Um, of course, I would have to meet him before I made a decision about getting involved in something like, you know, Harvey Weinstein's case. And I... I said, sure, I'll talk to him. And he said, we'll call you tomorrow. I'm having dinner with him tonight. I'll let him know that we spoke. And I said, okay, fine. Well, sure enough, that night, I'm back from dinner and my phone is ringing at this New York number. And, you know, it's Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, Harvey Weinstein was not used to people saying no or, you know, not willing to talk to him at whatever hour of the night he wanted to, to have a conversation. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've told the story a couple of times now, but I was actually in my house on a massage table getting a massage. And the irony of that is just, you know, <laughs> you couldn't make it up if you tried. And so we spoke and he said, well, I want you to come to New York tomorrow. And I said, well, it's 10 o'clock at night. I have a full day tomorrow. Like it's a little late to start moving tomorrow around. I said, but I can come Thursday. And of course, you know, it was like, but I want you to come tomorrow. And I said, well, I can come Thursday. And so I flew out on Thursday and we had a, a very long meeting um, on that Thursday. And when I left, I was pretty confident in the fact that we would 
come to some terms of, of representation. I've found that, especially with clients like that, who are used to getting people to respond so quickly that if you say, I can't do it tomorrow, it's almost, they, they want you more. It's like junior oh, high well, school. Of course. Sure. No, you're right. You're right. There definitely is. And you know, when you, when you look at the world that Harvey Weinstein lived in and, and I have, and I don't mean anything involving women or I just mean professionally. I mean, this was a man who was making the best movies, winning the most Oscars. No one was ever saying no to him, you know, whether it was studio executives or, you know, um, directors or casting agents or, you know, he, he right. just lived in a restaurant, um, owners, you know, there was just never a place hotel managers where, where he would go, where he didn't get exactly what he wanted. And I knew that I was the right personality to deal with that because I, 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 I have in the past and I just, I know how to be strong enough that I don't let that personality kind of take over. Sure. And, but, but he had, before you came into the case, very prestigious and good lawyers. I know Jose yes. and, and, and the previous lawyers were also uh, very well respected. Yes. Um, having him getting rid of those lawyers, did that give you concerns to come in or you, it didn't matter to you? No, I mean, obviously, you know, as defense attorneys, we always look at that, right? We always yeah. say, oh God, what's wrong with this client if they can't deal with, but I really, I really felt that in this case, Harvey sort of looked at his legal team in the same way he would look at casting for a movie and, and not, not to be flip about it or to make it seem like he wasn't taking it seriously because he was, but I think in many ways, the fit just wasn't right. And it had nothing to do with the, the lawyers or their skill at all. And I've said this from, from day one, when I've been asked this question, I have a lot of respect for both of those lawyers I've met with and spent time with both of them. Um, but I think, you know, Harvey and Ben Braffman, who was his first attorney in New York, were very similar personalities. You know, right. they were both tough New Yorkers. They were both. And I just think there was a little bit of a clash there. And I don't think there was a lot of give and take or being able to figure out what was good for client, good for lawyer, good for, you know, so I think that was a problem. Um, and I also think that Ben, you know, he and Harvey were too similarly situated age wise. And I think that there, I think Harvey was worried about a relatability issue when it came to jurors. And I thought that that was fair. Um, and, you know, Jose also, I think was just Jose tries cases and prepares for them differently than Harvey prepares for his work on his level. And Harvey is a detail-oriented, meticulous guy. And I think Jose was a little too big picture for Harvey. And I just, I, I think it was just a total conflict where Harvey felt that work wasn't getting done. And, you know, we know that Jose was doing what he needed to do, but, it, you know, the perception sometimes is, is greater than the reality. And he just wasn't comfortable. And, you know, at the end of the day, when it's your life on the line, no sure. matter what, you need to be the one that's comfortable. Sure. And, and you've mentioned this before, that being a woman played a big part in it as sure. well. And, and was he interviewing other women or once you interviewed, that was it and you took it? No, he did. He did interview some other women. Um, and, you know, I, I was, ha I would have been happy to work with, with them. At one point we thought there was another woman who might, who may join the team and that didn't happen, but he, he did talk to, you know, a, a few other women at that time. So, you know, Harvey was at that time, the most hated man defendant in, in the country. But I mean, it wasn't even close. Like if you took a poll, he was, he sure. was the most hated. So when you come into a case like that, um, I mean, are your friends and colleagues and family members saying, what, what are you doing? Or, or they're supportive? How, how did, what do they do? 
You know, I'm really fortunate. I come from an unbelievably supportive background. I have the best parents and the greatest sister, and I have 14 godchildren and niece <sighs> and a nephew. And yeah, I mean, it's it's quite a family. And everybody knows me so well. And they, you know, I was always that kid that even as a kid, I was an adult. You know, I just, I was never like, I never was frivolous. I never did silly things. I never, so I think everybody always trusted that I would make the right decision. And, and there was very little questioning of my decision. And, and any of the conversation that we had about taking the case really wasn't about the case or Harvey or a movement or anything. The case was about, did I want, and I didn't care about myself, did I want to put myself out there in such a way that my father would have to go to bed every night and see that I'm a hashtag on Twitter? You know, it was really about, did I want to bring that in to my personal life? And did I want to put the people that I love through that every day? And so that was, that was really the biggest, um, consideration for me. And, and you know, did you I talk said to, to him Harvey, about that? Did you talk I to did. your family about I, that? I, I did. I did. And I, and I talked to Harvey about it too. And I said, look, for most people, they would look at the press and the notoriety of this as a positive. And to me, it, this is in the con column. It is not in the pro column. It's in the con column. And so that really was the bigger thing for, for us to, or me really to get over was what it was going to put other people through. And so I did, I had that conversation. And how do you deal with that? I mean, I mean, cause once you come in, the attacks <laughs> were, I mean, they were attacking you nonstop. Oh, I still get them. I still get them. You should see the direct messages. I, 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 I bet. So how do you deal with that? Do you ignore it? Do you, I mean, it, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. You know what I did? I have to say I did. I completely ignored it. I never responded to one hater, not one. Yeah. Not one. And you know, some days you want to. Um, I've also though gotten, I would say equally, if not more, very positive comments. And anyone who's taken time to send me a positive comment, I have responded to. I, I think that that's very kind um, for someone to do that. And I always want to respond back with kindness. I, you know, I, I know who I am. And I don't need to convince other people about who I am. That's, you know, that's up to them to, right. to decide. No. Um, so yeah, it was, it was definitely, I think it was tougher for my family um, than it was for me. I, I, you know, I'm just, I am what I am and it's fine. But, you know, my dad called me one night when I was in New York and he said, could you tone it down a little? And I'm like, tone it down. I'm like, I I'm your daughter. Like, what do you mean tone it down? Like you taught me to be this way. And he said, no, I'm just worried about your safety. I'm worried about your safety. And I, you know, very valid, very valid. Right. And, and were, did you ever feel unsafe during the trial or, or no? Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel, um, physically unsafe once we started going to trial and once the trial was, was commenced and we were, you know, rocking and rolling in the room, there were so many, um, wonderful court staff, sergeants, police personnel in New York. I mean, I cannot say enough. I, we miss them. We talk about that in Chicago all the time about how we miss the people that we were with in the That's courtroom nice. every day. Yeah. yeah, they were great. And they were so wonderful and welcoming to us. And so I didn't, and you know, we had, we had security, um, you know, available to us if we, if we were in positions where we felt that way. So no, I really didn't. Um, you know, you would read certain comments from people and you were like, oh, wow. And there was a couple of people who showed up to the trial that made some comments to the deputies where they felt like maybe there was a safety issue, but you know, they, they took care of it. So. Because it wasn't just you were representing, you know, the most hated guy in America, but but you were also, I mean, people saw you as working against the movement because... Oh, no question. You know, so so it had the double sort of effect that you don't see 
in cases generally. I mean, in a murder case, there's not a movement against the defendant. Um, right. he, here there was the Me Too movement, obviously, that was in full force. Um, and, and people dubbed you sort of the anti-Me Too mm-hmm. uh, lawyer. I mean, mm-hmm. how did you take that? Well, you know, of course, because I was a woman, that was right. that was heightened, right? Because any any male who took that on, you know, would never have been looked at as a villain against the movement. It would they would have been looked at as someone who was representing their client, and it would have never it would have never been, you know, this anti Me Too person. Um, you know, I I was vocal about how I felt about Me Too. It's still how I feel about Me Too. I think Me Too has lost a lot of steam. I think the minute Joe Biden was accused and, you know, Alyssa Milano comes out and says, oh, no, oh, no, now we need due process. And I thought, oh, wow, that, she's been listening to me because that's what I've been saying. Um, and that was always my biggest, my biggest problem was that it just strips you of rights that you're entitled to. And the rush to judgment is, is so great. And so, you know, I knew that to me, the legal system doesn't align and your legal rights don't align with what Me Too was attempting to accomplish. And so that, that was my, my biggest problem with it. And so, you know, yeah, I was, I was up against that. I was up against, you know, the, the um, you know, not often as criminal lawyers, even if we have clients who are well-known or famous or, you know, recognizable, not often are they as recognizable. I mean, this guy was, you know, he was big in New York, he was big in California, he was big in every state in the United States, but then there was 187 press credentials outside of outside of the country right and so you know it was it was a worldwide deal and you know people know who he is and so it was there was a lot to manage there was a lot to manage and, and even in in most cases you have a group of people who support uh the defense and the defendant here i mean it seemed like everybody was calling for his guilt i mean it, sure and, and the people who did support us could, were totally uncomfortable to come forward Right. And, and I want to, we'll get to that about the defense case. Like it must've been hard to find people to stand up for him uh, during this time. But I want to get back to just the charges themselves. I mean, it seems, I wonder if he would have even been charged 10 years ago without the movement. Do you think he was charged because of the movement? Um, I definitely think public pressure played a large part in not only the charging, but the subsequent prosecution without question. Um, yes. Yes. And I, and I don't think 10 years ago he would have been charged. And to this day, I will stand by, I mean, you know, you've looked at some of the cross examinations and the evidence in this case to this day, I will stand by the fact that I do not think he was a rapist. I don't think he raped anybody. Um, you know, do I think he made bad, dumb, stupid choices? Of course, but that it didn't rise to the level of committing crimes. Sure. And so, you know, there was a lot of gray, um, and a lot of blurred lines here. And I, I just, beyond a reasonable doubt to me is, is just, I can't, I still can't fathom it. We're, we're going to get there, but let's start for a second with you coming into the case. Mm-hmm. So you're in, um, now you have to get ready on a really short timetable. Mm-hmm. You have a practice. I mean, what right. most people don't realize is- A large one. <laughs> right. You have a large practice. And mm-hmm. so what most people don't realize is you know, we have to deal with when we get involved in a case like this, we have to deal with all of our clients, with all the judges. What, what do you do at this point? Do you, do you start to assemble a team or how do you deal with it? 
I, I have, you know, lawyers that work for me in Chicago who were not going to be part of working on Weinstein. There just was no way that I could take them away from the other work that needed to get done. I had to remove myself, of course, from other cases. I worked on nothing but Weinstein um, because when we were first hired, we were hired in June and then we thought we were starting trial in September and then there was an issue and then trial got moved. But anyway, when I thought I had 60 days, basically a little less than 60 days to get ready, um, it was all I was going to do. And I was, I mean, Christmas day, even after it didn't happen in September, Christmas day, I was working. Um, I brought in another lawyer from Chicago who has a separate practice for mine, but we share office in the same space. So he and I work very closely together. Um, I brought in um, some help for the lawyers in my office. And I also went to every single judge that I had matters before and let them know what was going on. Um, and I have to say, so grateful for my hometown yeah, and for the wonderful people here that said, go to New York and shine and you know everything will be fine here. And to my clients, my clients who were supportive of what I was doing you know, happy to have a lawyer who was hired on a big case. I think that made a lot of people feel good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, let they trust other people that I play. And really, very little pushback that I have, you know, from clients. And the, the very few that said, oh, you know, you're too busy doing that. And you're, I said, look, you know, this case is really no different than your case. It's just that somebody else decides to put a camera in my face. But really, you know, at the end of the day, from my perspective, getting ready for a case is getting ready for a case, no matter who it is. So. Right. But but this case, I mean, did have the difference of all the press, like you said before. Mm -hmm. And and it seemed like early on, part of your strategy was to embrace the press and talk to the mm -hmm. press and be open with the press. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, you mentioned that the Chicago judges were were proud of you, but it seemed like the New York judge got got a little pissed. You know, the New York judge was just difficult at every turn. I mean, I, I knew what we were up against from the very beginning. We were going to get no favors at yeah. all. We weren't going to get an inch. We weren't going to get a half an inch. We weren't going to get a quarter of an inch. I mean, when I asked the guy to close a window because I was cold, he said, he looked at me and said, no. So, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't going to get any, you know, there was going to be no uh, happiness. So at that point, I knew what I was up against. I was respectful. Um, as I am always in any circumstance, I still had to fight for my client, but I had to do what I needed to do and, you know, do it ethically and do it right. But I, I gave him very little other than professional and, you know, um, you know, my mother taught me, right. So, you know, other than doing, doing what I knew to be the right thing to do, I, I had to also just continue to do my job. And if so, I got my, if I let myself worry about how difficult he was, just no. wasn't going to solve, it wasn't going to help. We've all been in front of those kinds of judges. Yes. And so one, one thing I want to ask you about that is, do you think any hope, like he was hometowning you or that's just how he is to all sort of criminal defense lawyers? And That's a good question. I don't really think he was hometown because actually once the trial started, um, in terms of letting us try the case, he let us try the case. So, and I think once we were there and actually working I think he saw that we were serious, like we knew what we were doing. You know, I, I, he just didn't know what to expect. I mean, we didn't have a lot of press before this, you know, by design, frankly. But who we were as lawyers, it just I just was never that kind of lawyer. I didn't care about putting my face in front of a camera. And so like there just wasn't a lot to know. And so I do think to 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 be fair, once we started actually working, I think he realized, OK, you know, they're going to try a good case one way or another. Right. Um, he hated Harvey Weinstein. He hated every bit of Harvey Weinstein. And it was obvious every day. 
Yeah. And, and I read, I read about the story about being too cold. I mean, what I read about, and tell me if this is right, is that yeah. it wasn't just you shivering, like everybody in the courtroom was shivering and we're like Everyone. thankful that you asked for the window Correct. to be closed. Correct. And then a juror several hours later said it was cold. And he looked at me and he said, well, Mr. Chuno, you're lucky you're getting your wish now because the juror's cold. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. You know, I just, I thought he was kind of petty about certain things. And I, I just, I, he didn't, like we would make motions. He wouldn't rule on them. We would respond to things. We wouldn't rule. We'd ask, are we getting a ruling? He wouldn't give us an answer. It just, it made it very difficult, especially in the confined amount of time we had to not have a lot of guidance about the way things were going to go, you know, down to, he schedules a meeting in New York in the morning. And I said, well, if you can make it a half an hour later, I can actually fly out to be there. And he wouldn't do it. And I ended up getting there and walking in in the nick of time. But it's like, just to me, very unnecessary drama. Right, why? Yes, yes, yes. You know, Harvey Weinstein, for better or for worse, was in terrible shape um, when he came into the trial. Um, And a lot of people really criticized you for the shape he was in, Mm -hmm. which was bizarre to me, like Mm -hmm. as if you had... Like I was to, the stylist. <laughs> right. So, so what, what happened there? I mean, he was really in bad shape. Yeah. Harvey. I mean, I look at pictures of Harvey from August to really January and the change in him was so painfully obvious, just, you know, watching how his health failed, the stress of it and what it did to him. Um, you know, he had two small children and the stress of, you know, knowing, what could happen to him and, you know, worrying about all of that. And so it was really, and especially now, if I look back and, you know, I'll see people show me different media pictures of us from August versus January. And it's just, it's palpable. I mean, really the, the, the difference. And, you know, we, he, he tried every day, you know, he was in a lot of pain, but he right. came, got up every day and, you know, showed up on time and dressed as well as he could. And, you know, Harvey's still, many was just kind of a regular guy that didn't really get, sort of wrapped up into all those other, those other things. So his, his main function was getting in and out of that building every day and, you know, staying upright with the pain that he was in. Right. And there were, you know, just as many articles about the way you dressed, which was crazy to me. Yeah, like, no, no, there, there would never be an article about a, a male criminal defense lawyer suit or the shoes he was wearing. Um, but there was a lot about, about what you were wearing. I mean, how, how did you, how did you deal with that? You know, I kind of laughed about it really because I've always cared about fashion. So, you know, it's always been something I like. It's always been from this. I I think my parents will tell you when I was four, I asked for Gloria Vanderbilt jeans for my birthday. (laughs) I mean, how how do you become that way? I don't know. Um, But it was really funny because, you know, obviously I watched big cases over the years and I watched what press did to women. I mean, you look at what Marsha Clark went through, you know, during OJ and I consciously said to myself, I will not be Marsha Clark. You know, I I will not be somebody that they tear down every day. So I guess if they talked about that, I look nice, I was fine with that, you know, of course, especially somebody who likes that stuff. Um, The funniest question I got though, was someone, one of the writers asked me if my clothes were rented. I was like, <laughs> no, they're all mine. They all came with me from Chicago. I own them all. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. And somebody said, you know, we noticed you didn't repeat an outfit. And I'm like, well, you know, most of this was by design. Like I thought about this ahead of time and I came with my clothes. 
Um, so, you know, it was flattering. I know that there was an article, I think it was the Washington Post writer wrote an article and, and it turns out that she was a fashion writer talking about my clothes and what they said about the case and what they said about me and it compared it to the way the, the mob of people dressed outside. One day there was a flash mob and they happened to be in black and red. And I walked out of the courthouse that day in black and red. I mean, it was like, you couldn't have, I mean, it was just, you couldn't have written this stuff better than the way it just, you know, happenstance took place. But. See, when a guy tries a case at a time, we bring five dress shirts, five suits, yeah, and lucky. we just recycle it over and over. Yeah, Nobody notices. Lucky. Yeah, you know, you're five gray, gray, ja gray jackets and that's it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I didn't have that luxury. <laughs> We've talked about getting involved in a massive case, fighting a movement, fighting social media. Coming up next in For the Defense, we'll talk with Donna Rattuno about jury selection and the start of trial. In the next segment, I'm going to speak with Donna Rotuno about the start of the Harvey Weinstein trial and the challenges we criminal defense lawyers face in trying to pick a jury in such a highly publicized case. Many clients want to hire a jury consultant. They believe that jury consultants can unlock all the information that you need about a juror and figure out how that information translates into whether the juror will vote guilty or not guilty. And there's such a wealth of information you can get about people now from their social media posts, if they have social media, to their political leanings and so on. The hard part is figuring out how that information translates into how they'll judge a particular case. And so there's the tension of the criminal defense lawyer trusting his or her gut versus trying to decipher all of this information in a quick way. And we'll hear how that played out in the Weinstein trial next. So you're going to pick a jury now. Do you have jury consultants? Do you have people helping you or do you, do you go with, with your gut on this? It's, it's actually my biggest regret on the case and not that the jury consultant wasn't great and I have a lot of respect for them. I like them very much, but I, I, coming into the case, I had lost so few juries and I believe a lot of that has to do with my instincts. And I, sure. I think I have, a, I think I read people very well. I, I have some sort of like intuitive skill and, you know, I, I just feel good about the juries I pick. And I didn't feel good about this jury and I knew it and I talked about it and we fought about it. And, you know, really Harvey made an 11th hour decision to hire jury consultants. And as much as I wanted them for helping us gather the information, because I mean, we were dealing with thousands of people, you know, right. so we needed somebody who could, who could get us information on the jurors and, you know, consolidate it. But when it came to kind of telling us who and what to pick, it didn't sit well with me. And I, I mean, I knew it when I looked at the jury, I'm like, this is not the jury that I want to try this case in front of. Because and why so you wanted, I, what were you looking for that, that. Frankly, I would have put more women on the jury. I know people think that that's crazy, but I would have, I think women are tougher critics of women. Um, I would have picked some different women. Um, I would have looked for, and we had a few um, conservatives um, in the bunch. And I, I would have looked for some more conservatives. I think it's tough in Manhattan uh, to find that. But given this type of case, I think it was too emotional. And I need people who are going to remove the emotion from the case. And I just find that to be, um, especially given Me Too and you know right. the, the 
the political affiliation there. So I, I really, I would have, would have looked more towards that. Um, so for me, and you know, now granted, were we ever going to be, who knows, you know, could we have picked a different jury and had a different decision? No one will ever know. No, you can't. But no. All I know is that I didn't feel good about those 12 people. Because the prosecutor was uh, complaining that you were getting rid of white women. Correct. And so, you know, it seemed like that was the strategy for the defense was to get rid of women and white women, especially. Yeah, I know it seemed that way, which was not at all my strategy in any way, shape or form. Frankly, I would have and I would have loved more women with sons. I think women with sons look at these things different ways. Um, But yeah, so it it was what it was. And what about trying the case in New York? I mean, it seems like it's a tough place to get a fair trial for a person like Harvey Weinstein. Well, it's tough, of course, especially because, you know, you're talking about two years of articles in the New York Post and New York Times. I mean, the New York Post wrote about him uh, every other day, probably. And so for two years leading up to it. So we, we did not find one human being, not one, who's never heard of him or the case. I mean, not one. I mean, that's, that's like unheard of. Um, and so that was tough. And afterwards, I had a couple of conversations with some journalists who sat at the trial every day. And very candidly, they said to me after the fact, there wasn't enough evidence. I I don't think he should have been convicted. And I said, you know, I did my job. Did you do yours? Because every day for two years, you wrote the most hideous, unfair articles. And how was I ever going to get a fair jury if you don't do your job? And so it frustrated me. And as much as I tried my best to be pleasant and, you know, I dealt very well, I think, with the press. We we got along fine. And I I think they were mostly fair to to me. The problem was they only wrote one sides of these stories. And so I would say, well, you know, we should be telling this or we should be writing about this. And and I, they would say literally right to my face, there's no appetite for that right now. I'm like, no appetite. I mean, that's, here's the facts. Right. So I mean, seeing, seeing firsthand the notion of fake news, you know, we all ask ourselves, is that really a thing? But seeing it firsthand made me really um, much more skeptical than I have ever been about just media in general. I mean, criminal defense lawyers talk about this all the time, and I don't think it gets enough play where a witness will testify um, and the article the next day will be about the one sentence in direct and not about the three hours where the witness crumbles on cross. No and you, question. You come, you read the article the next day and you're like, were they in the same courtroom that I was exactly. in? Exactly. That's I mean, exactly right. And that happened every day, every witness, every time. We'd read about the direct examinations and go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what about all those other questions? Every day. And so, but there, this... Uh, trial was not televised. Do you think we should be televising these trials? Would that help? Or or what do we do? You know, I, I think that, you know, I think it helps in the court of public opinion. Does it help for the 12 people who are there? Who knows? Because mm-hmm. they, you know, they see the same thing. And, you know, are they going home and looking at the press? I, I think they are. I, I mean, I don't know. The judge orders them not to. But how realistic is that? I mean, I, you know, who knows? So so opening statements come around. Um, the prosecutor, of course, comes out swinging. Um she, she was it the lead prosecutor who gave the opening. It was her colleague, right? Her colleague, right. Megan Hass, her colleague, yeah. And, and your colleague gave the opening Correct. statement. It, that, that's got to be tough, right? Not to give the opening statement out for this trial, or no? What happens? You know, it's funny. I, for the most part, every case that I've tried in the office, I always have another lawyer who works with me, and usually I allow them 
the opportunity to do the opening statement. So I don't normally do many of them. It's funny, if another lawyer brings me into a case, that's when I end up doing the opening and you know sure. they, they do the closing argument. So the few times in my career I've actually given an opening, and I gave a lot more when I was a prosecutor than, than I have as a defense attorney, but you know, it's funny. But really in, in this case in New York, because in New York, the defense goes first, for opening statement, for closing arguments, excuse me, it almost felt very foreign to me because I wasn't responding to something. So it was a very different deal for me. You know, I saw that. I, I was mm -hmm. surprised. That's the only mm -hmm. place I've ever seen where the yeah. defense goes first in closing. I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're going to get there eventually, but what, what did you yeah. make of that? You know, I just had to, to deal with it, but it was, it, it was okay. You know, once I got started, it was okay. But once to actually sit down and write it without being able to respond while I was, you know, sort of trying to make the argument was di was difficult initially when I sat down to to start composing it. But you know, I, I got through it. Okay. They put us at every disadvantage, right? I mean, no, no it, question. You know, the one I, place when I say it, I mean, you probably have seen me say it. I say defense attorneys start every game t down twenty-one to nothing. Like that's just the way we live our lives. Coming up next, and for the defense, we'll speak to Donna Rotuno about how she dealt with the other women who testified who were not even charged in the Weinstein indictment or case. One rule in criminal trials that surprises the public when they hear about it is that a criminal defendant not only has to answer the charges in the indictment when he goes to trial, but he also has to answer other bad act evidence, which judges frequently allow in. In the Harvey Weinstein trial, only two women were charged as victims, but the judge permitted the prosecution to call four other women to testify about what they say happened to them. They weren't charged as victims in the indictment. There were no convictions against Harvey Weinstein for doing anything to these women. And yet they were permitted to testify about things that go all the way back into the 1990s. And this rule has really allowed the prosecution to hurt um, the reputation, credibility of a defendant. And it may lead jurors to convict even where there's not enough evidence on the actual charged conduct. And so many times there's a conviction, there's an appeal. The defendant complains about the judge allowing this evidence in and many times appellate courts say yeah it should have been let in but it's harmless error so the conviction is affirmed this is just one of the many many rules that are stacked against criminal defendants and their counsel contrast that with the rule that doesn't allow criminal defendants and their counsel from cross-examining women about their past the rules are really stacked against criminal defendants and makes trials difficult. We'll hear how Donna Rotuno dealt with these issues next. So um, six women testify against Weinstein. Three of them were in the charges, but three were not. And, and what, is, what does the judge say? Why does he allow these other three to come in and testify? So that hearing was done, that Molyneux hearing was done with Jose Baez. Um, so we, we weren't a part of that hearing, of course, obviously, I read all the transcripts, but um, the judge felt that, you know, they were able to testify under the rules and under New York law. And of course, we disagree with that. And I think just as this is now going to be an issue um, in the appeal in Cosby, I think it's definitely 
going to be part of the appeal for Weinstein. I mean, granted, different states, but I, I definitely think that it, it could play a part. Because I'll say, in, in looking over the transcripts, to me, the the uh, the women who were in the charges got crushed on cross-examination. And crushed. the women who were, and we'll talk about some of those crosses, but mm-hmm. the other women, the supplemental witnesses, I mean, they almost seemed to have more credibility than, and I'm not, just not to judge sure. it, but, but sure. the crosses went so well for the people in the charges. And then you have these other women come in, it seems almost unfair. Correct. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I think it's, it's, it's unbelievably unfair. And I don't know how that prejudice you know, there's, there's just not much that outweighs the prejudice that that causes. Right. Like there, I was looking at the cross of Jessica Mann. So, so you get her to concede that she had consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein. And I think you asked her after long negotiations and, and, and she said, yes, she admitted that um, it was to help her acting career. And she admitted to manipulating Weinstein. I mean, she, you got her to use those words. I've never seen anything like it. I thank you. And I, you know, I felt very good when I was done with those three days, (laughs) three days. Right. Um, And, you know, the bottom line is the fact that the jury found him guilty of any count involving her. I walked out of there and said, we never had a chance. I mean, there's just, I don't know in any universe, in any trial, in any place I've ever practiced or any jury I've ever, I I just, you know, I mean, to this day, I'm speechless over, over that finding. Right. So, so what is, I mean, how, how do you figure out, like, how does a jury find him guilty of a count, including her, where she says she manipulated him and got something out of it? I think in the end, frankly, they felt sorry for her. I think that she, you know, she broke down, she was screaming and crying. She was, but you know, she broke down because she was caught in the lie. She broke down when she was confronted. Yeah. So there was a, she had, she was very, um, she liked to document things in her phone. And so she would write these like little blog entries and I don't know where she would put them online somewhere, but we found them in one of the, um, uh, data drops on her phone and there were these yeah exactly there were these notes entered and you know this note was about this threesome this like you know apparent fictitious threesome but it fit all the you know qualities of the other um statements that she had made given this threesome that she claims to have had with Harvey. And she tells a completely different story to the police about this threesome than is told to us from the other woman involved in the threesome. And then I find this in her phone and I'm like, whoa, 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 this is a completely different, you know, situation. And she describes the other woman as an Italian actress, which is who it was, you know, so the whole thing, I mean, and that's when she starts crying. She starts sobbing and crying when she is confronted with this note. So she wasn't sobbing and crying, but I think she just, they had to end court that day. I mean, she was so, um, she was such a wreck that court had to end that day and we had to come back the next day. And it was, I think at the end, when push comes to shove, the jury just felt sorry for her. I think that it was a lot of sympathy and, you know, that was of course a risk. You know, we talk about as criminal defense lawyers, like moments in trials that, mm-hmm. that, you know, you're in these long trials that go on for weeks and weeks, but there are special moments. And it seemed like when she broke down, you must've been like, here's our moment. You know, we're going to totally. win. This, we're going to win this thing. I mean, when that happens, you got to be thinking we're going to win this thing. 
Oh, 100%. And not only did I think it, but a lot of people in the audience thought it too. And, you know, really after that day, that's when the news story started to change. And the news story started to say, what if Harvey Weinstein wins? And could Harvey Weinstein win? And could this is the first time anyone said anything like this, you know, the entire time that we're, you know, representing him or the entire time he's fighting the case. So, yeah, I mean, you feel good about that. You wake up in the morning and you're like, you know, wow, did that really happen yesterday? And what kind of vibe are you getting from the jury at this point? I mean, a lot of eye rolling, a lot of eye rolling, a lot of shifting in the seats, a lot of, you know, you know, the, the head tilts and the. Yeah. And is this the woman that said she introduced him to her uh, mother? Correct. And, and viewed him as sort of like a pseudo. Is this the one who said viewed him as a pseudo father? Yes. This is the woman who, when she needed a reference to join the Soho house, she uses Harvey Weinstein as a reference. I'm like, so of all the people, after, you know, after, the supposed after, right. after I said, so of all the women or all the people, you know, in LA and she, she testified, I'm friends with the guy that did Marvel and I'm friends with the, I said, of all the people, you know, you chose your rapist to be your, um, Reference? I mean, it's like, who does that? I mean, it, there's not a universe that I understand that. Not a universe. And, and so when you're up, you know, doing the cross, you know, unlike Vaudeer, where you have consultants and you're having to listen to everybody, you're doing your thing. Mm-hmm. You almost, I mean, we, again, we talk about this, you put your notes aside when you get answers like this and just sort of go with it. No? Correct. Oh, absolutely. I'm not a big note person. And, and this, I mean, obviously with, with the volume here, you know, I needed a, um, a timeline, a kind of a outline to make sure I hit the things I needed to hit. And because I had so many emails that I had to go through, I was bogged down with right. binders and paper in this type of a case. But normally, like I'm just, I and and he really didn't let us walk around very much. Like I'm a, and there wasn't a lot of room in that courtroom to move around. I'm a mover. I walk around, I, you know, hand documents. And I, so I was, I felt a little uh, confined from what I'm used to, but we, we made it work. Because he made you stay at the podium? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the for worst. For the most no? part. Yeah, yeah for the, the most part. He let us move a little bit, but not much. And what about the crosses of the other women? Haley, um, how did that cross go? It went really well. Damon did that cross. I thought it went really well. Um, you know, again, the jury, it was really interesting. And, I, you know, I always think, and I'm sure you've, you've had this experience, when jurors split the baby, you know, they kind of find not guilt on some and guilt on others. You know, you know that there's question marks back there, because frankly, in a case like this, it really was all or nothing. Really. Right. I mean, in my opinion, it was an all or nothing kind of a case. So the fact that they did split the baby led me to believe that they just felt like they couldn't let him walk out. So like these crosses were great. Damon did a great job with, with Miriam. Miriam was a little um, more of a composed witness. She still got, you know, it was still ridiculous. The, the story she tells that, you know, she claims that, you know, he's sexually assaulting her, ripping out a tampon. And the next morning she's taking a flight to California that he paid for and getting in a car with the driver that he sent. So, you know, it was just the timeline. And then she, anytime any of the witnesses were confronted with a timeline that didn't make sense, it was always a, well, you know, there was always an excuse for, you know, why there was an action that didn't make sense given, given the timeline. So it it was frustrating. And, and similar with the, with the third woman, Annabella, um, the cross, did you do the cross of her? I did. And how did that go? 
you know, it went well. It was also a full, at least a full day. I mean, it was a, it was a long, it was a long day. Obviously the jury found not guilty on the count involving her. You know, I think with her, what I did, her account was from 1993. And, you know, I said to the jury, I was graduating high school. I mean, think about like having to remember, I mean, I, specific instances from anything that happened then, even traumatic ones, I think would be difficult. And she, I think, I think the jury realized that she benefited after she made these claims. Mm -hmm. And I think that that made her seem a little um, less reliable. And also, you know, I really did hit on the fact that she was an actress and a good one. And, you know, for a living, she has convinced people that she's someone else. And I played a, a, a clip from David Letterman when she was on David Letterman saying that she makes a habit of lying to people. And, you know, I mean, those, those are damning, those are damning statements. I think in the end, she just, she didn't come across as, uh, and she, it was a little forced. She seemed a little forced. I mean, you mentioned some of the cross and uh, earlier, it was a graphic trial um, in terms of what the jurors had to listen to. I mean, at the close of the state's case, they show naked pictures of your client. I mean, was that done? What do you think the real reason for doing that is? And do you think it was effective for them to do it? We fought like hell to keep them out because there was absolutely zero reason other than shaming him and embarrassing him. There was no reason to do that. No evidentiary value. It didn't help in the description. It didn't, it, to me, it was one of the most unduly prejudicial acts and it was vindictive. And I've tried a lot of cases against a lot of prosecutors that wouldn't, wouldn't make that move. And I found it to be, um, underhanded and frankly shady for lack of a better term and as a prosecutor i never would have done it so by the way you were a prosecutor once right i was and did you prosecute these kinds of cases no i didn't i didn't prosecute i I have to think back i don't think i did any sexual assault cases doesn't Um, seem like it would be in you to do it yeah, no, I, I didn't. And, you know, back then, I mean, there, there wasn't as many of these cases. Sure. As there are now. And if there were, they were the, you know, stranger danger, much right. more egregious situations, much more cut and dry than, than the cases I'm talking about now. Uh, no, I tried a lot of drug cases and gun cases and murder cases and, you know, th- things like that. But In the trials that we've talked about so far uh, on the podcast, Michael Jackson and some others, people really stood by the defendant in the Jackson case, Macaulay Culkin mm-hmm. testified famously mm-hmm. and other people. I mean, it seemed here that people did not stick by Weinstein when it came time for your case. There were a few, of course, but but you would have thought there would have been a lot of people to, to stand up. Was it because of the movement or what was going on there? I definitely think it was because of the movement. And I also think, you know, look back to some of these older trials that we're talking about that got unbelievable press. And it was before this social media world that we live in today. And, you know, you look at just the, the unbelievable beatings people take on Twitter and Instagram and hashtags. And, you know, I think it really changes and I think it's going to change criminal trials because people say, I don't need this aggravation. And it's terrible. It's terrible because Harvey had people who really, really supported him to this day who call me and check on him. And, you know, they just didn't want to put themselves out like that. And, you know, Harvey was very understanding of that. He he was. And it was it was a tough situation because we had other people that we could have and would have called if they were more comfortable. Coming up next and for the defense, we'll get to closing arguments and an unusual step that Donna Rotuno took that got her into some hot water. 
You've heard how Donna Rotuno was fighting against a hostile judge, hostile press, hostile prosecution during the Weinstein trial. But she also had to deal with celebrities speaking out against her client every evening. Rosie Perez, Rose McGowan, Ashley Judd, just to name a few. Gloria Allred was on the news every night. And you're going to hear that Donna Rotuno took the unusual step of writing an op-ed asking the jurors to stick with their oath and not to listen to all the noise. This resulted in the judge getting really angry, the prosecution getting really angry. And you'll hear why Donna thought it was important to do, why she thought she needed to do it, and why it was justified in this case. So now you're coming to closing. You got to go first. Um, I, I think it said you gave a five-hour closing. That's a long time to talk. Five and a half hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that the longest closing you ever gave? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And 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 so and I saw you really went after um, the prosecutors in a lot of a lot of instances mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you know the lawyer's credibility before the jury is really important. Obviously, mm -hmm. you're, you you want the uh, jurors to believe you, and you you went after um, the prosecutor. Um, and you, I'll quote, you said, I feel sorry for Jessica Mann. She is a victim of this table. And, mm -hmm. and you went after them. I mean, mm -hmm. what, is that a strategy you use a lot? No, no. I, you know, I used it here because I really thought it was warranted. Um, it's, I, I'd have to think back. I don't know if I've ever done that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I definitely point out the fact that they're under pressure if they are. But, you know, in this case, no, I, I was really horrified by the way the whole thing went down, frankly, I just, it was a win at all costs um, mentality there. And, and just the, the theatrics before the press that were completely different than when we were trying to deal with them. And, you know, we had a meeting prior to look at photos and, you know, it was like, everything was so contentious and there's just no reason for it. Like I'm, I'm a fighter and I like to win and I'm competitive, but I am not contentious. I am respectful to lawyers. I want to be friendly. I mean, it's very rare that I get in, you know, like pissing matches with, with prosecutors. And this just, it was so petty all the time, every interaction. And I just, it, it wore it's me out. It's exhausting, frankly. right? It's, it's exhausting. exhausting. It's exhausting. And actually at one point and toward the end, I said to one of the prosecutors, I have zero interest in engaging in any conversation with you. And right. I mean, I, that's just never something I feel, but it was that I, I was just like so done with the nonsense of it. And it was like, you're never going to see it my way. I'm never going to see it yours. So let's just stop trying. Because in some cases, even though it's a war, people understand what they're doing and, and it's not, it's not personal, but it seemed like it got personal here. I mean, it, 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 there were parts where it, it did. There were times. When it right. Did. And one of the parts it looked like was when they went after you for, for talking to the press and for mm -hmm. the op-ed when the jury's about mm -hmm. to go out and you, mm -hmm. and you made the point, I think rightfully that, you know, they have all these people speaking to the press, all Absolutely. these uh, famous actors and actresses speaking to the press and, and you guys don't. And so you write the op-ed um, and you took a lot of heat for it. I did. Yeah. And, and, and was it put yourself, I guess, in, in the prosecutor's mm -hmm. shoes and the judge's shoes? I mean, do you understand why they were pissed or, or, or. Sure. No, I do. But you know what, if you're going to tell me that your orders mean, some, mean something and the jury's not reading the news, then what's the difference? You know, every day we would be upset about, you know, something <laughs> right. that was written. And we're, you know, we're told every day 
oh no, I gave orders and they're following my orders. It's like the line from a few good men. You know, I, I give orders. If orders aren't followed, people die. You know, right. It's like, come on. I mean, this, it was so ridiculous. And then the, the thing that aggravated me most about it was most of that were lines directly out of my closing argument. So I'm like, the jury's already heard it. Right. So it's, this is not anything that even if they did read it is anything that's problematic. Number one, number two, how many people really read Newsweek? And number three, I mean, really, and you know, number three, they had people running outside every day, every minute, all the time. And I was like, this is so, you know, even to the point where at one point, and and for, frankly, it was it was I was impressed by this. Gloria, I had to leave to go to a funeral back in Chicago. And it was, I was gone for 36 hours and I came to Chicago, went to the funeral and went back. And in order to do it, I asked the judge to break early on the Friday and he broke early on the Friday. It was during deliberations and I had not been home one time. I stayed in New York the entire trial. Mm. I never came home on a weekend and I'm like, I need to go home. Right. And we, we said this all up at the bench. It wasn't on the record. And the next day, Gloria Allred is going to one of the news outlets saying that I had to leave for a funeral. And they're like, we're Must not have infuriated you. Yeah. I'm like, they said, we're not going to talk about that. So I, I approached her and I said, look, you know, like there is just no need. Like my personal life is my personal life. But I knew that it was because the prosecutors walked away from that bench and told her what the deal was. And she runs to the press. And I thought, you know, they can't have these mouthpieces and then think that we don't have a right to speak. So I saw that that you did approach Gloria mm-hmm. Allred, and of course that got mm-hmm. a ton of press because mm-hmm. you know she's obviously a well-known lawyer. You're representing mm-hmm. Weinstein. You go and get in her face, which I love, by the way, because you got to <laughs> fight. You know, you have to fight. Not you're not just fighting for your client at that point, but I mean, for them to bring in your personal stuff with everything going on is just right. outrageous. So, so you right. go stand up for yourself, mm-hmm. and and, and how I does always she, will, <laughs> and of course. And how does she respond when you go when you go stand up for yourself? You know. It, ridiculously, you know, it was like, I, I didn't, I did. I'm like, no, I, I know you did. Like, I wouldn't even have this conversation if I didn't know you did. And it's not appropriate. And, you know, it was, and, and, you know, that's really all I said. And then Arthur came over and said, okay, you know, you let's be done. And then, and then what does she do? She runs to the cameras to talk about it and talks about my, you know, she's in her four inch heel, Jimmy Choo's. I mean, it was so, it, it makes women look bad, frankly, to act that way. Like I approached you to say, please don't discuss my personal life with the press. And then you go to the press to discuss the conversation. I mean, it was like, it was crazy. They, they called you a couple, a couple of the press people called you the anti-Gloria Allred uh, yes. in, in the case. I mean, I, I think that's a compliment, no? A hundred percent. I'll wear that as a badge of honor. A hundred percent. Right. And and I also like uh, that they called you the legal Rottweiler. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I love that. No, that's great. Oh, hey, I, I take all of that. You know, I am tough. I, I embrace the fact that I'm tough. I, I just have a, and it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm actually a soft, kind, nice person, but I'm tough when it comes to standing up for what I believe in. And, and there's very and my clients. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. And there's very little, um, that would make me ever, uh, change that. I'm just, I, I don't waver from those things. It's who I am before I became a lawyer. I'm just, it's, I'm fortunate. And I, I came back to Chicago and I, friends of mine had a little gathering and it was crazy because it was like the few days before COVID madness. And I, I stood up at the dinner and I said, I, I knew that I could go out and stand up for what I believed in and totally be who I am because I didn't care what anyone else thought because I knew I had all these people at home that would you know, that's support awesome. me. And, that, and that's, really, that's really how I felt the whole time. So the jury's out. They start asking questions about statute of limitations and about blueprints for the apartment. 
are these questions making you feel good or making you on edge? Some I thought made us feel good. Others a little bit on edge, unsure. You know, they asked for a lot of readbacks, which we also yeah. don't have here. So, you know, that was a little, so we would sit in the courtroom and listen to testimony again. And for the most part, I thought that was helpful to us, sure. especially when they would ask for the cross examinations to be right. read back. Um, so there were some days I thought, okay, these are good questions. And other days when they came back with the, you know, can we find on this and not on this? And I thought, oh, you know, where, where are they going? Yeah. So, you and know, waiting is the worst point, part, right? Waiting is just the absolute worst. And it was what, five, six, six full days of five, five or six full days of deliberation. Torture, so. no? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. So they come back guilty. And on- we had to sit in the courtroom the entire time. He didn't let us like we sat in the courtroom every day, all day. We had to show up at 930 in the morning until he let them go. We sat I, in the room. I've never heard long. of such a thing. I, I've not either. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Brutal. 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 All right. So, so the jury comes back um, guilty on two of the counts. Correct. And you mentioned before, like either they felt sorry for somebody or a lot of times what people don't realize is for a criminal defense lawyer to win, you have to run the table. You have to get not guilty on all of the counts. And I don't think the jurors understand that either. And a lot of times after a long trial, right? I mean, after a long trial, they may want to give the prosecution some, give the defense some. Totally. and think they're doing you a favor when mm-hmm. in reality you have to you have to run the board. Do you think some of that was going on there? For sure. For sure. Um, did you talk and, to- and I'll tell you that when the verdict came out, this is the part that just the minute I knew we never had a chance. They walk out with the verdict, they go to the jury box, they don't look at us, yeah. they don't look at the prosecutors, they looked at the press. Oh no. And it was it, that's the first time I've ever seen that. I mean, they looked at the press for the press's reaction. And I'm like, wow, yeah. that really in that moment, I'm like, these people, you know, even if they thought he should have gone out of here, they were afraid to do it. Sounds like it. And, and, you know, I I saw that Harvey Weinstein started, you know, saying I'm innocent when, when the verdict came in. I mean, what a dramatic, tough moment. Very, very. And, you know, I, I, it's funny because Harvey gets a lot of press for being a tough guy. And there are times when he can be very tough to deal with. But overall, I had a very, very good experience with Harvey Weinstein. He was respectful of me. He continues to be. He knows how hard we worked. And I think really he was looking for people that really paid attention to detail. And we did, I mean, painstaking detail in this case. And he watched it and he saw it. And he, I think he had a lot of respect for the work that we did. And although, of course, all of us wanted a different result, he, he never, he hugged us. He never once got upset. He what never, more can you, you know, ask for? what more can you ask for? And so I, I, I do have a lot of respect for him. I, I think he was put in a tough position at a tough time. Right. I think he was, you know, sort of the, the, the rules of the past are new rules. And he was, you know, he was kind of operating under rules of the past and that didn't translate. And unfortunately, um, you know, he, he really took the brunt of a lot of, I think, bad deeds over the years of many. And so it was a, it was a tough situation. And Donna, tough what's going to happen now with the charges out West? Does he still have to face those and go to trial or? Yeah. You know, we don't know. It's, it's like COVID has stopped the world and, right. you know, we, we just, we don't know they, nothing's really been said about what's going on out there. So I don't know. I, you know, we are probably not staying on, we're doing some work with him now, just consulting on the appeal stuff, but you know, I, I don't know what, what the 
situation is there. The, it seems like everything's kind of on hold right now. The 23 years isn't enough for the LA prosecutors? That, that's exactly right. That's my point. Like, what is the point? Um, now, granted, do I think that the New York appellate court might, you know, might, might make some ruling that would change that? It's possible. Okay, so I let's do wait, think, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do think he sentenced him as if he was found guilty of all counts. I mean, yeah. he did not sentence him in a way that showed that the jury found him not guilty of three counts. Well, so, that's another thing that people don't realize is that even if you're acquitted of counts, mm-hmm. you can still be sentenced for those counts in most jurisdictions, which is an insane Correct. rule, but that's the rule. Correct. Another reason Correct. why we have to run the board uh, if we want right. to win a case. That's right. So, so let's talk about you for a second after the case. Sure. I mean, how do you get back to normal life and normal practice? You know, it's weird because I really thought about that. I'm like, how is, how is this going to work? You know, how do you go back to dealing with the more mundane, but you know, I, I craved it, I think, because once I got back, it was good, but I came back to COVID. So literally restaurants closed, the world closed, courthouses were closed. Right. Gives you some time to regroup. It did. It did. But it was very bizarre. You know, I'm like, I asked for a break, but I don't really know if this is what I meant. And, you know, and my like 60 second night of restaurant food, I said, Oh, my God, all I want is a home cooked meal. And I'm like, wow, I think I needed to really be careful what I wish for. Because <laughs> I came home, I'm like, now I don't even want to look at my kitchen. Right. Um, but right. you know, it was really, you know, I asked for a break, I asked for a home cooked meal. And you know, I really got one. But I, you know, I was unpacking and my best friend who lives in Chicago, called me and he said, you know, is there anything that I can now stop over? Is there anything I can bring you? And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe time and perspective. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So I'll do my best. Uh, But I I had that, you know, I had some time. I had some perspective after this was over. I, I, I know we did our job. You know, I look in the mirror and of course I want a different outcome. We always do when we don't win, but I, I'm comfortable with it. You know, I, I look in the mirror and I say, you did the right thing. And, you know, of regardless of, yeah. So in the well, end, I, I think it was okay. One thing I forgot to ask you, I mean, mm-hmm. were you considering calling Harvey to the stand or, or was that never really an option? You know, they kind of handcuffed us. And I think that's another appellate issue in the Sandoval ruling um, in, in uh, New York. The judge basically let in everything but the kitchen sink in terms of, you know, bad acts from if the past, you were to people are a worker. Exactly. Exactly. And so I just thought it was it was too big of a risk, given all of those other things that could come in. Have you returned all of the rented clothes yet or not yet? <laughs> yeah, no, they're all mine. They're all mine. Actually, I gave some away because I'm like, where am I going to put all this? <laughs> Well, thank you very much. This was a you're great welcome. interview and really That's interesting. Great. And, and you know, you're, you're one of us. You're a criminal defense lawyer fighting the good thank fight. You. And so thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. It was fabulous. And if I'm in Miami, I'll do a shout out. I have a case in Palm Beach now. Okay, so, so we'll visit when you get down here. If this ever ends. Sounds like a plan. Thank you for listening to the first episode of For the Defense. It was really interesting talking with Donna Rotuno about representing Harvey Weinstein. Even someone like Weinstein, with all the resources in the world, you heard was an underdog trying to fight against a hostile press, a hostile judge, hostile prosecution, celebrities speaking against him every night, other bad act evidence coming in. It's really hard to go to trial in a criminal case. And yet there are champions and fighters like Donna who do that all the time. Next week, we're going to speak to another fighter, another true champion of the criminal defense bar, Roy Black, who represented a 
police officer back in the 1980s who was charged with killing a young black man. And this is coming off of uh, huge racial tensions in Miami after the McDuffie riots. And you'll hear about a very similar environment that's uh, going on today and the challenges that Roy had in fighting for his client during such a climate. I'll see you next week on For the Defense.